Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 55, The Laws of Roncalia. Today we'll talk about part 2 of Barbarossa's plan to take control of the Kingdom of Italy. Part 1 was the subjugation of Milan and the softening up of the communes. Now comes part 2, the establishment of a new system of government for northern Italy. Before we start, just a reminder, the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. You'll find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Ulf and Markus who've already signed up. So just to recap, by September 1158, Barbarossa had completed one of the shortest and most efficient Italian campaigns of the medieval period. He had set off from Augsburg in mid-July and by early September, Milan had capitulated. By October, most troop contingents, both from north of the Alps and those from the communes, were on their way home and all of northern Italy was his. Barbarossa, meanwhile, is not going home. He takes a tour of Lombardy, visits Monza, where his uncle had been crowned king of Italy, and then calls an imperial assembly on the fields of Roncaglia for November 11th. For the Italians, this whole thing starts to look a bit odd. Why is he still there? Milan has fallen, imperial honour has been restored and the army has returned home, so surely the emperor is going home too. There must be some domestic issue or feud or something that requires his presence up north, right? But... It can't be helped. They show up as requested, hoping that all he wants is a last knees up before going home. They are in for a shock. Barbarossa is going to unleash on them a new and unexpected weapon, more devastating than a trebuchet and more cunning than a bohemian king. I talk, of course, of the professional lawyer and the Roman law. Roman law wasn't new, nor was the professional lawyer. Both flourished over in Constantinople. It was just in Western Europe that it had not existed for centuries. Before 1100, law in Europe was a hodgepodge of local customs, some law codes issued in the 6th and 7th century by Germanic rulers, the most famous one is the Salic law, then there were the rules of feudal law, whatever that was, and I don't want to really go into that debate, then there were some ecclesiastical rulings and some remnants of Roman law practice, the latter really only in Italy. These laws were incoherent, patchy and often contradictory, and hence judgments were very unpredictable. Furthermore, judgments were provided either by a jury of peers or by the ruler alone. None of them had any legal training, making again the outcome of cases unpredictable. And finally, access to justice was limited. Part of the privileges aristocrats believed they had was to bring cases to the emperor meaning a plaintiff needed an aristocratic sponsor to get a hearing. Court procedures were unregulated, and decisions were often taken without detailed investigation or without the other party even given a chance to respond. One such case was Barbarossa's decision to support Lodi against Milan in 1154, without either hearing the Milanese or, in fact, even hearing the city leadership of Lodi either. The state of affairs was unsatisfactory but acceptable to a largely rural society with limited monetary exchange and dominated by personal obligations rooted in status as a serf, as a free man, noble or prince. 
it was utterly unsuitable for the urban world of Italian communes. Merchant relationships weren't ruled by status, but by contracts. They needed clarity on their legal position in order to properly assess the risks of their transactions. Attempts had been made to codify the existing laws into a coherent structure, for example under King Henry I in England, but even there, in the most advanced governmental system in Europe, the task was unmanageable. That is why the rediscovery of the Codex Juris Civilis of Emperor Justinian in some Italian convent was such an immediate success. The Codex Juris dates back to about 530 AD and contains a comprehensive, ordered, coherent and rational set of laws designed for the sophisticated urban society of the Roman Empire. It did not just contain the laws, but also a collection of authoritative legal opinions on these laws and a textbook that helped students to learn to understand the law. Just to get an idea about how groundbreaking the Codex Juris is, it's important to understand the difference between a compilation of laws and a codex. Hansard is the official report of all parliamentary debates in the British Parliament since the 18th century. It is therefore the official record of all laws of England and Wales. It's also very long. There are more than 600 volumes since 1980 alone, and the total is supposedly over 2,000 volumes. Neither are all these laws equally important, nor is anyone physically able to read all this. And then, there's the question how well all these statutes interact with each other and how the regular citizen can get an understanding of the law. Now, the Codex Euro is by no means short, nor is it an easy read. But it is a lot shorter and a lot easier to read than Hansard. The difference between a compilation and a codex is not what is in it, but what is not in it. When the Codex Juris Civilis was created in 530, there were already several compilations of imperial legislation and of authoritative legal texts. These laws and opinions would sometimes say diametrically opposite things. The authors of the Codex then took all these compilations and ordered its content by subject instead of by author. Then they looked at the different rules side by side and decided for one and ditched the rest. Rationality was the key driver of the decision which rules to keep. Does this rule fit with the overarching concept? Does it operate in harmony with others, or is it likely in tension with another part of the Codex? Does it provide a fair and equitable outcome? They did the same with the authoritative legal text from famous jurists of Imperial Rome. They again ordered them by topic, matching the list of topics to the Codex and stripped out the bits that were contradictory or out of sync with the overall structure. What comes out in the end was a legal system as opposed to a list of rules, a system that was logical within itself, and it was also abstract. For instance, it required agreement over price and object as a requirement for anything being regarded as a contract. It does not matter whether it's a contract over a bag of grain, a journey to Constantinople, or the marriage of your eldest daughter. That means the rule could still provide useful answers to issues the writers had not anticipated. The Codex Juris was designed for an urban society that was used to import olive oil from Egypt, silk from China and tin from Cornwall. It was so far advanced compared to all the existing law codes in the 10th century, it was as if you had given a copy of Einstein's theory of general relativity to an 18th century natural philosopher. So the lawyers of the time could understand it after years of diligent study and propel the application of law forward literally by centuries. The bits that worked very well for the Italian city-states and that they first adopted were the private law parts, 
law of contract, law of ownership, and the like. Such topics were simply non-existent in most Germanic codes. For instance, the Sachsenspiegel, a collection of ancient laws of the Saxons, had no provisions on how contracts are entered into and the obligations the parties had under such contract. It simply wasn't something the rural society of 12th century Germany had any need for. And what the Italian merchants also preferred was the judge-centric legal system the Roman law prescribed. In the Germanic legal tradition, judgments were made by a jury of peers, and that is unsuitable when it comes to adjudicating complex contractual arrangements. A jury rarely has the time and the training to assess the contents of a 100-page contract. I know that in some US states, juries decide on such matters. Let's just say it's a model rarely copied elsewhere. Professional lawyers who had spent years training in Roman law are much more suitable judges on such matters. Not because they're any less biased, but because their decisions are more predictable. They will, by and large, use the same sections of the law and the same legal commentary to derive their decisions, which means their judgments should be similar. The third component that contributed to the success of Roman law amongst the merchant elite of Italy was the concept of equity. Equity is the idea that if the outcome of a mechanical application of the law would result in an outcome that's apparently unjust or obviously not what the party is intended, then the learned judge can alter the outcome to a more sensible result. That reduces predictability, but is also extremely useful in cases where an unprecedented set of circumstances could lead to a frustration of the party's intents. Take the loss of a valuable cargo on a ship traveling from Constantinople. There are hundreds of things that could have caused that. A drunk captain, a storm, an incompetent pilot, pirates, fire on board from cooking, fire on board due to lightning, spoiling of goods due to heat, incompetent storage, incompetent storage ordered by the recipient, etc. etc. pp. Equity is a useful concept. I can say that because I remember a time in my dissipated youth when I spent a long night writing a force majeure clause in an English law contract, where equity does not exist in the same way, and had to think of all the things that could happen to a chocolate factory in Bulgaria. And whatever had gone wrong with that factory, and in all likelihood something had, it was not on that list. So I might be biased, but equity is a much more useful way to deal with that uncertainty than letting interns slave away through the night. So, Italian merchants were supportive of the corpus juris as it gave them a legal framework for their commercial existence, a judiciary that could produce predictable resolutions to disputes, and a concept of equity that balances potentially unjust outcomes. But the Codex Juris did not just contain contract law and court procedure alone. It also contained something like the constitution of the Roman Empire. And that constitution in the year 530 was that of an autocratic regime. The emperor was the source of all laws and stood above the law. Law was what pleases the emperor. There is even an explanation inside the Corpus Juris where the imperial authority had come from. According to this theory, the right to pass laws had originally rested with the Roman people, but that under Augustus they had permanently transferred this right to the benevolent emperor. Subsequently, under Roman law, the princeps could pass or cancel any law he liked. He can appoint the judges who are responsible to him, and he has a wide range of privileges we will discuss in a moment. For Barbarossa, the Corpus Juris was even more an answer to all his prayers than it was to Italian merchants. It solved so many of his problems. 
his first problem was still the foundation of his authority. Newtonian emperors had derived their authority from the concept of sacred kingship, from being the vicar of Christ on earth. But following the investiture conflict, this source of authority had been lost, or worse, was now residing in the papacy who could enfeef somebody with it. And that was unacceptable to Barbarossa, because it meant the Pope could easily choose someone else, say the Byzantine Emperor or the King of France, and make them Emperor. But where, if not from the Pope, does his authority come from? Well, it's there, in black and white, in the Codex Juris. The Emperor has absolute power over all citizens of the Empire, because that power has transferred to his predecessor, the Divine Augustus, in the 1st century. In fact, imperial authority predates the Pope's and even Christianity and hence is independent of papal authority. His second issue was that the imperial administration had so far relied entirely on the Chancery, which was staffed with churchmen. Even though Barbarossa was able to retain the loyalty of his bishops and the German church in general throughout his reign, having a non-ecclesiastical source of smart administrators would be extremely useful. And that is where the school of Bologna comes in. They are churning out a near-endless stream of young, highly trained, mostly impecunious and hungry men who could be put to good use in the imperial administration. And they will. For instance, Pietro de la Vigna, the Chancellor of Barbarossa's grandson Frederick II, was one such jurist, who had studied in Bologna on a scholarship. The third problem was more specific and more imminent. How to exercise power in Italy. The German governance system did simply not work in Italy. The bishops and princes through which the emperor exercises power in Germany were simply too weak in Italy. The episcopal rights and privileges had transferred to the communes and the major princes had largely disappeared, except for parts of Piedmont and some pockets in central Italy. What was needed was a legal definition of the relationship between the powerful communes and the emperor. And that is where the Codex Juris comes in. It was so simple. The communes had already adopted Roman law. And the Corpus Juris was a codex, which means it was a coherent, unified law, not a pick and choose. So conceptually, if you use the rules on contract law, you also accept the absolute rule of the emperor. During the assembly in Roncaglia in 1158, Barbarossa took this line very forcefully. He did promulgate the so-called laws of Roncaglia. They are so-called laws of Roncaglia because there weren't new laws. The way he framed it was that these were just reminders of what the law already was according to the Codex Juris. So let's see what that means specifically. The first was the Lex Regalia, the law of the imperial rights. Do you remember the oath that Otto and Reinald have made 57 communes swear earlier in that year? It is the one where the citizens of each city have promised that they shall not deprive him of his royal rights, here or elsewhere, and if they should be taken from him, I shall in good faith aid him to recover and retain them. Barbarossa thinks it's time to be a bit more specific about these royal rights. Like, very specific. Like having a piece of paper saying exactly what they are specific. For that, he enlists the help of the famous jurists of the University of Bologna. These four great doctors, I spare you the names, they're simply known as the four great doctors, are held in highest regard across Europe for their knowledge and understanding of the Codex Juris Civilis of Justinian. Barbarossa tasks them to produce a comprehensive list of all the regalia, the royal rights in Italy. 
Now the four doctors draft in a further 28 lawyers, one from each major city to help with the task. You see, the professional lawyers are unleashed. This commission comes up with a long list of regalia, which include ownership of all public roads, navigable rivers, harbours and riverbanks, the right to demand any kind of tolls for transit or use of bridges, the right to mint coins, the income from fisheries and salt mines, the Crown also owns all lands without an owner, the property of traitors and of convicted criminals, and those who live in incestuous unions, and half the treasures found on imperial or church land, and all of it if he assisted in its recovery. All the silver mines, the right to commandeer ships and conveyance of goods on roads. The Emperor can also demand a special tax for an imperial expedition, the so-called Fodrum. And now comes the smart bit. The laws of Rincalia stipulate that whoever currently exercises these rights has to prove ownership with an imperial charter explicitly awarding these rights. As I mentioned before, these rights had been lost to the crown during the long imperial absences from northern Italy. They were initially assumed by the bishops and then by the Italian communes. And some of the bishops had received imperial charters confirming the transfer of these rights, but only when they were loyal to the emperor against the pope. So, not that many. Usually, the bishop had simply taken the rights without ever saying please and thank you. In the early 12th century, the communes wrestled the privileges from the bishops and again, there was rarely an imperial charter confirming the transfer. They may have forced the bishop to sign a paper transferring the rights, but that was not valid without consent of the emperor. That was it. Nobody had the necessary papers and bingo the emperor could claim the lion's share of all those sources of income. To get a bit of context around that, the regalia are estimated to have produced an income for the empire of 30,000 mark of silver per year. Compare that to the fine Milan paid of 9,000 mark of silver for uprising and the 400 marks of silver Henry the Proud and Pope Innocent III fell out over, which cost the wealth the crown. 30,000 mark of silver per year is an unimaginably large sum, dwarfing anything Barbarossa could get from Germany, and more importantly, any resources any of the great German princes could ever mobilize. The law on the regalia had some elements of Roman law as we've seen, but it is, at heart, still going back to traditional concepts of ownership and enfeoffment. There are three more of these laws of Rancalia that are pure Roman law. The first is the Lex Palatina, the law of the palaces, that stipulates that the emperor can erect palaces inside any city if he so chooses. Now when we talk about palaces here, we're not talking about luxury homes. A palace of Pfalz in this context is a fortified structure inside the city, housing a garrison as well as imperial bureaucracy. The cities that used to house imperial palaces like Pavia and Ravenna had tried to get rid of them since time immemorial. You may remember in episode 22 when the Emperor Conrad II gave the citizens of Pavia a harsh telling off for destroying the Imperial Pfalz in 1024. The last thing any Italian commune wants is an Imperial stronghold imposing central authority over the city council and the consuls. The second one was the Lex Tributum, the Law and Tributes, which re-establishes the taxation system of antiquity. The emperor is thereby entitled to raise a fixed amount from each citizen as a regular poll tax, as well as a tax on property. 
Now, if you've been following the podcast for a while, you know how important the ability to raise regular taxes is to the formation of stable political entities in the Middle Ages. One of the key reasons the kings of England could fight 200 years' wars against a much larger France was their ability to raise taxes in England. Can you imagine how European history would have unfolded if the Holy Roman Empire had been able to raise taxes from the richest region of Western Europe? To the Italians' relief, this law was not yet to be implemented. It was more of a reminder that the emperor can bring such taxes under the Codex Juris. The third one of these is the Lex Omnis Jurisdictio, which declares that all jurisdiction and coercive power belongs to the prince, and that all judges receive their authority from the prince and have to swear an oath to that effect. That de facto abolishes the municipal courts and replaces them with imperial courts. Now all this is indeed legit under the Codex Juris Civilis and the four great doctors of law tell the Italian communes that this is what it is. And then Barbarossa gets up and allegedly delivers a speech dripping with Latin quotations and references to the Codex Juris Civilis. Not bad for an illiterate man with modest, if not negligible, Latin. At the end of the speech, the bishops, nobles and communes formally renounce their regalia and swear an oath on the four laws. Now, Ravin even tells a story that the commune suggests to Frederick that he should appoint a podesta in each commune to ease implementation. A podesta was usually an external person of good standing who was given dictatorial powers over a city for a fixed period of time. These podestas had become necessary as strife between factions inside the city had become uncontrollable. You know, you might have seen these pictures of San Gimignano, a small town in Tuscany, which has preserved many of its medieval tower houses. Now, practically all Italian cities were full of these family fortresses that are physical manifestations of the brutality of city politics. It's the Capulets against the Montagues everywhere. As positions hardened between the different family factions, the city became ungovernable, and hence the need of a podesta to stand in the middle for a fixed period. An imperial podesta, chosen by Barbarossa and installed for an indeterminate time, is a very different proposition. Now, the whole of these laws and the podestas are a massive case of imperial overreach. Compare the laws of Roncaglia with the terms of the surrender of Milan. The laws of Roncaglia are even more intrusive than the terms the defeated city had to sign. Remember, Milan was allowed to keep its consuls and elections and did not have to take a podesta. Judicial authority in Milan was awarded to legates only in cases involving the honour of the empire, but not just everything. And there was no mentioning of taxes, just a one-off payment. It is hard to understand why the cities, in particular those who had been fighting alongside Barbarossa against Milan, would accept such terms. Well, they may just have sworn to all these things, not out of conviction, but because they were standing in a muddy field outside Piacenza, surrounded by the now much smaller, but still very lethal, army of Barbarossa. So we'll see next week how all this pans out. But before we do that, let me talk a little bit more about Roman and Germanic law. There's no doubt that Barbarossa would have loved to extend the laws of Roncaglia to the entirety of his empire. But German legal traditions were fundamentally at odds with Roman law. At around the same time, in 1220-1230, Eike von Repgo will publish his Saxonspiegel, or Saxon Mirror, a collection of Saxon laws and customs as they had been passed down by his forefathers. 
It does not cover all areas of the law, but focuses on two. The Landrecht, which is the law governing the interactions between free men and women. The Landrecht is focused on topics like property rights, inheritance, family law and neighborhood disputes. The Landrecht also includes the criminal law, which stipulates a number of compensation rules, the so-called Wehrgeld, to compensate for injuries. The second part is the Lehnsrecht or feudal law. It determines the rights and obligations between the different layers of society, starting with the king and going down to spiritual and secular princes, lords, free men of substance and other free men subject to feudal obligations. Finally, it covers the courts. It stipulates that a court is comprised of a jury of peers presided over by the king or a count. You see the difference. Roman law is rationality. Germanic law is tradition. Roman law is focused on issues in an urban society. Germanic law covers issues arising in a rural society. Roman law is applied by professional lawyers. Germanic law is applied by peers. In Roman law, the emperor is above the law and makes the law. In Germanic law, the king is subject to the law. A new law arises from precedent and customs. These two systems could not be more different. We'll get to hear more about Roman law and Germanic law traditions as we go along, but here are the broad outlines of what happens. Roman law will take hold in Italy and France. Once the school of Bologna stipulates that each king is an emperor in his own kingdom and hence can pass any law they like, the French kings get on board. The Capetians found the University of Montpellier specifically to produce lawyers trained in Roman law to staff their administration. These professional lawyers even formed their own type of aristocracy, the nobles of the robe, who controlled the high courts. After the revolution, the concept of the rational and coherent code of law is still appealing and leads to the modernized form of the Codex Juris, the Code Civil, promulgated by Napoleon in 1804. The Code Civil is still in force in France and several other countries, obviously with modifications along the way. In Germany, as always, the situation is muddled. Roman law and professional lawyers became an important tool for the princes to manage their territories, and it ultimately became the law of the empire, and so formally reigned supreme. However, Germanic law and compilations like the Sachsenspiegel were not completely abolished. It was presumed that they were remaining in force thanks to a privilege granted by Charlemagne, which almost certainly did never exist. That means it could be applied to disputes between Saxons, but all cases involving non-Saxons or areas not covered by Germanic law, Roman law was dominant. The Saxonspiegel was still cited as a source of law in 1932. But ultimately, German law ends up being based mostly on Roman law foundations. When the Bürgerliche Gesetzbuch, the Code of Civil Laws, was passed in 1900, its structure and content was heavily influenced by the Codex Civilis. For instance, courts are judge-centric and laymen are only involved in some parts of criminal law. There is, however, one legal tradition where Germanic law concepts still prevail, and that is English law. It is not that the kings of England were unaware of Roman law. Absolutely not. Allegedly, a copy of the Codex Civilis had come to Oxford as early as 1149, and many advisers and clergymen of the Plantagenet kings had been trained in Roman law. According to Norman Cantor, it was mostly an issue of convenience. England already had a functioning legal infrastructure with shire courts and hundreds courts that would be difficult to replace. Moreover, these courts did a decent enough job as far as the king was concerned. They managed themselves, i.e. it did not cost him much, and they transferred a steady stream of fines and court fees to the king. 
And as for the concept of autocratic kingship, the source of all laws, that was hard to push through after Magna Carta and the provisions of Oxford. I mean, one king tried, but he lost his head over the issue. So there you go. Germanic law traditions no longer apply in Germany, but via English law are still in use in the US, Canada, Australia, many Commonwealth countries, and dominate the world of international trade. And poor law in turn still sweat over risks to Bulgarian chocolate factories through the night. As mentioned before, next week we'll see how the Italian cities take the laws of Roncalia. Spoiler alert, not well. And Barbarossa loses the moral high ground when he accepts cash for conflict from the Cremonese. I hope you will join us again. And in the meantime, if you feel like supporting the show or want to get hold of these bonus episodes, sign up on patreon.com slash history of the Germans. All the links are in the show notes. <laughs>